And 13 weeks ago, actually it's about 18 weeks ago, when we started planning out the Revelation series, Scott and I talked and Scott said, hey, we're going to end this thing with Mark Ivey singing No More Night. So we've been waiting 13 weeks for that song. So thanks for sharing that with us today. That's pretty good, don't you think? Now, obviously the talent was pretty good, but the words were better. Because what it points to is the promise and the hope that we have that because of Christ and because of what he has done, that we have no fear, we have nothing to worry about, we have no uh, pain to suffer in those days to come, no more tears, no more sorrow. Everything has been made right because of Christ. And that's what we've been talking about for these last 13 weeks. And today... We are going to bring it to a conclusion. We're going to bring it to kind of a landing. Uh, This week, I asked our team to go through uh, the entire room and put seatbelts on all the seats today because I have a 30-point sermon today. And Guys, are we going to bring out a, a, can we get a stand, Richie or somebody? If y'all could bring a stand, that'd be great. and uh, cause I got a lot of stuff here. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through like literally the entirety of God's plan, God's ultimate plan for everything that we're going to be doing. Now, I want to like make sure that we're ready to do this. And so I asked the team also that we want to remind you that if you don't have it, today would be a great day for you to actually uh, download our TRBC app. And here's why. All of the notes, everything I'm going to be speaking of and talking about today are in the sermon notes. And so if you download the app, by the way, hold on, this is more, this is important. That's my little granddaughter. Okay, so then we, if you go to the TRBC app and you go to the, uh, the front page there, you click on sermon notes and at the top, God's timeline, all the notes are there. And so you'll see, I'm still scrolling. And so all of that we're going to cover today. Great time for you to download the app if you don't already have it. I encourage you to do that. And also, I'm going to give you a moment to do that. So before we move into the sermon, I want to remind you that next week we're starting a brand new sermon series here at Thomas Road. And we're going to walk through the fall. We're going to cover the books of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians over the next uh, weeks going all the way into the end of November. And so starting this Tuesday, you heard uh, Lewis and Stephen talk about it. We're going to begin walking through this study uh, in our small groups, our life groups all around the church, Sunday school classes on Sunday mornings, and it's called our Jesus First series. Everything we're going to be doing for the fall is called Jesus First. If you go back uh, into the early days of our ministry, back in the early 70s, uh, my dad actually uh, made these little metal golden pins and he sent out literally tens of millions of them around the world. You'll see a lot of them in the room today. You'll see one of them right there on my lapel as well. And we've entitled the series this fall called Jesus First as we walk through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And so uh, this is the book that you'll receive in your life group starting on Tuesday. And then uh, next Sunday we'll be handing out this book, which will be a, a Bible journal, the study guide that will walk through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And so we'll have all of these for you. Uh, Again, Tuesday for this book, next Sunday for this book, and we want to make sure you're part of what we're going to be doing and talking about in the days to come. Now, as we begin walking through this uh, final sermon in the Revelation series, as we begin walking through this picture of where we are, uh, it's kind of a, a God moment for me this morning, because as I was driving in, I left my house this morning at about 515 
And uh, I, took, um, I took the two dogs that I have that I like. I took them outside this morning before I left. I left the other one inside for Sherry to deal with later. And that's actually true, actually. So, uh, but, but I left at 5.15. And as I'm driving in, I normally don't do this. But I, for some reason, the radio was on in my car. And so I was driving in. And there was a show on the radio this morning called Coast to Coast AM. Is anybody in the room, like, are you familiar with that radio show, Coast to Coast AM? A few of you. Uh, it is the strangest, craziest, weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. And they were interviewing and talking with a guy who was with this organization called the Newton Institute. And this Newton Institute apparently is a, an organization that is actually, a, they have a board and they have people that work there and all of these different things. And the purpose of this institute is one thing. It is to figure out how that we can have connections with those in the afterlife of talking to people who are no longer here. And this guy was talking about how he has now developed this brand new uh, ability, this brand new idea, and he's been now practicing it for two and a half years where he, he will have someone come to him who is going through a difficult time in life, and they will set up a therapy session, and the therapy session is not typically like a counselor and the individual. What he does is he calls down a counsel from heaven and this council from heaven comes into the room where they're gathered together and then they ask for uh, someone to come as a, a medical professional and the medical professional is not a doctor that like is here and practicing now but rather it is one that is sent from heaven to come into the room so that they can deal with all the emotional issues and the psychological issues and even the, the medical issues and he has said that over the last two and a half years I, I've actually been in the room with these these entities is what he calls them from heaven and I've seen them actually like heal these people that have come to me for uh, these sessions this guy's nuts <laughs> like true wackadoodle off the charts nuts that's what this guy is now the reason I say all of that to get to this point is this is that today there is a thirst for what is after we are leave this earth there's a thirst to know, like, what is it going to look like and what's it going to be? Now, we know, and we've been walking through it all summer, like, like we know God's plan. God's plan is, is eternity. It is heaven. It's a perfect place. John chapter 14, when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where you am, or I, where I am, you will be also. That, that is what Jesus very clearly told us. And so in light of that, today we're going to walk through not just like the idea of that, but we're going to actually go back to the very beginning. Because before Genesis ever happened, there was eternity past. Now, in eternity past, before God created, there was God. God existed. God has always been. God will always be. He has been forever. There's always been God. We read the story of God, that he was there, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has always been in existence. Angels that he created were there with him before time began. We read about in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 that, that then Lucifer, who was an angel, that he, because of pride, he, he, he fell and was cast down. And then we know as we walk through this idea of God's perfect plan of what God wanted eternity to look like. And so we're gonna jump right in. We're gonna start walking through this idea, walking through this picture, looking through what is God's plan for all of eternity. And God's plan started in Genesis chapter 1. 
In Genesis chapter one, we find God's creation. You know, Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, we've talked about it a lot for the last couple of weeks. We hear those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created exactly what he wanted this earth to be. He created perfection. He created perfection in the earth. He created perfection in the sun and the moon and the stars. He created perfection in all the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. He created perfection when he created mankind. In that passage, it says that God created male and female. Male and female, he created them. And when he saw them, he said, it is very good. The creation that he had designed. John Salehammer stated it this way, this statement of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, these seven words are the foundation of all that is to follow in the Bible. The purpose of the statement is threefold. To identify the creator, to explain the origin of the world, and to tie the work of God in the past to the work of God in the future. It is impossible for us to talk about the future if we also don't talk about the past. It is impossible to talk about what God plans for us for eternity if we do not also talk about where God started this thing called life. And so God created a world in perfection. He created it for perfection. His design was for it to be absolutely perfect. But then from God's creation, we move into Genesis chapter three where we find the fall of man. And we find in that story, and we all know where the, the serpent, Satan, came into the garden and, and he came there and, and, and he tempted Eve and Adam to, uh, to move away from God's perfection and to, to bring disobedience into the picture, disobeying God's plan. And we have to recognize that, that God creating what was to be perfect, the only way, the only potential for God to create perfection is, was also for God to create choice. To give people the option to give mankind free will, to be able to choose to worship and follow God. Because if we do not choose to follow and worship God, we are nothing but slaves. We are nothing but robots. And that's not perfect worship. I mean, perfect worship can't be a people that have no choice but to worship the, the person that we are worshiping. And so therefore, God gave free will. And Satan knew that, Lucifer, who had fallen because of pride. And he brings this idea in of, who told you that you, God just doesn't want you to do that because then you'll be like God. And here we are now, all of these thousands of years later, and people are still trying to be like God. And so what God created as perfection, man fell and brought in sin. And when he brought in sin, it leads us to the next part of the passage in, in Genesis. After we walk through this story, we go to Genesis chapter seven where we see the flood, where we see where God judges the people that are on the earth. In fact, in Genesis chapter six, verses five through eight, it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
In your Bibles, you ought to underline that passage. Go back to Genesis chapter 6 and underline that verse in verse 8. Highlight it in your phones or iPads. Why? Because hear the picture when it says that God was sorry that he had even made man. When he saw that there was nothing but continual evil at every turn. When it says here that he wanted to destroy all that he had created. And even in the midst of all of that, that statement in verse 8... But Noah found grace, even in the worst of the worst of the worst. God's amazing grace is always present. What a life lesson for you and me. When life stinks, when things are hard, when you have fallen, when you have made mistakes, when you have messed up, which by the way, you have and you will. God's grace is always present. I love that idea from Genesis chapter six, verse eight. And so the flood comes and we know the story. But then after the flood, after Noah and his family come off the ark and after they come out and and begin to repopulate the earth under the command of God, we then walk into Genesis chapter 11 and where we see the Tower of Babel, which by the way, is the beginning of Babylon. The beginning of that city of Babylon that we talk about in Revelation, that, that, that city that, that exists for the purpose of being a counterfeit to God. The city that exists to always be the opposite of what God intended. And so at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, it says this, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Here in this moment in Genesis chapter 11, their design, their hope, their passion was this, is to build a tower to make a name for themselves. In other words, we are to be worshiped, not God. And so we know what what God did. He confused their languages. He spread them out all across the globe. And yet Babylon started. Now we know in Revelation, we talked about it a few weeks ago, Babylon will be rebuilt. In fact, I was talking to Gavin Johnson here last week after the service. And Gavin was talking about how like even today they are beginning the processes of, of rebuilding the city of Babylon. There's an institute called the Future of Babylon Project where they're actually going to, to reestablish this picture of what Babylon was. And so we know that what started there in Genesis chapter 11 was again this thread that goes all the way through creation until the end. After the Tower of Babel, we come to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, it says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God set Abraham on a journey which would ultimately lead to the promised land and the promised Messiah. That God began this journey, this promise that he made, this covenant that he made that continues all the way into the book of Revelation, into the end times. We know then after Abraham began his journey that eventually we come into Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then we come into the the, the 12 brothers and we know that Joseph was, was sold off into slavery and because he was sold off into slavery in Egypt and then he began, he rose to power and prominence in Egypt and we know Israel then moved down to Egypt during the time of the famine and then we know as it tells us in Exodus that then it came to the point in Exodus chapter one where there was a new king and that new king had forgotten all about Joseph and the promise and the covenant that he made with them. And now we find Israel in bondage. 
And as Israel is now in bondage, we know that, that he's sitting there and, and Israel is in a place where, where they are so oppressed and they are broken and they're wondering, why did God abandon us? In Genesis chapter three, verse seven, we read the passage of scripture that tells us this, that God saw their oppression and he heard their cries and he came down to deliver them. And that's exactly what God did in Exodus chapter 12 when Israel was delivered. God used an imperfect person in Moses. God used a person who thought, thought everything that possibly he could, came up with every idea to get out of it, like begged God, don't make me do this. I don't want to have anything to do with this. He tried his best to get out of the picture, to get out of the narrative, and yet God said, no, 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 I am sending you. And so we know the story that God delivered Israel as they go across the Red Sea and they begin a 40-year journey. And this journey, as they began this journey in the wilderness, ultimately became Israel's journey to the Messiah. And we know in the passages of Scripture the rest of the Old Testament story. And the rest of the Old Testament story is just simply this. It's the story of the judges. It's the story of the kings. It's the story of the prophets. It's the story of a, of a nation that at times repented and followed God. And at times they fell away from God. And at times there was pride. And at times there was, there was humility. And at times they were at war. And at times they were at peace. And, and at times they were running after God. And at times they were running from God. And all through the story, the narrative that we read all the way through to the last book in the Old Testament, it is God who is always faithful faithful and Israel who was not. And we know the story of, of all that God did during that time. And all of it leads to one very important truth is that it was Israel's journey, not to the promised land that he gave, which they certainly arrived, but it was Israel's journey to the Messiah, the prophecies of the Messiah who would come. But in the middle of that narrative, in the middle of the stories that go from Exodus chapter 12, all the way into the end of Malachi, there's one passage that I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on today because it's the passage of the prophecy that talks about what the end would look like, what we've been talking about for 13 weeks. And it's in Daniel chapter nine and it's Daniel's prophecy. And here, this focus that we see here, it's an important passage. And I want to read these four verses to you, beginning with Daniel chapter nine, verse 24. And Daniel's prophecy that he received was this, is that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the streets shall be built again and the wall and even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, but the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, who's confused? Like you read that, it's like, what in the world did he just say? What in the world does that mean? But we have to go back in light of what we've been studying. 
And in the very first part of this verse, of this passage in verse 24, it says 70 weeks are determined. Now that word weeks there is the Greek word or the Hebrew word Shabuah, which doesn't literally mean like a seven day week, like what we would identify. In fact, the better translation would be there kind of this idea or a correlation, if you would, from what we understand, it would be like using the term dozens. And so if I said to you, hey, there are dozens right outside of that door, there are two things that are going to come to mind. Like first questions, what Rob, if I said there are dozens right outside that door, what would you think? Like dozens of what, right? Well, like what does it, what do you mean? Dozens of what? Exactly what we read here. And so when it says that 70 weeks are determined, it's kind of this idea of 70 sets of something are determined. Now you look at this idea and this word of weeks and we look in scriptural references and we understand it can mean days, it can mean actual weeks, it can mean years and here with all of the specifics in the timeline that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Clearly the understanding here is that there are 70 sets of 70 years here, 70 sets of sevens that are here. And so it says here, 70 weeks are determined. Now, when you look at this idea of this 70 weeks, which is 70 years, 70 sets of seven, it goes on to tell us this in this passage. It says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Nehemiah chapter two, we get the story of Artaxerxes. And, and he is the king is there and, and Nehemiah comes to him and, and Nehemiah is broken and the king says, well, what's going on? Why are you so upset? And he says, because my city, Jerusalem, lies in ruins. And so Artaxerxes says this, well, go and rebuild the city. And so when you go to this passage, it says, hey, from the moment that the command is given to rebuild the city, that is when the timeline should begin. And so that first set of sevens, it takes us from the time of about 440, 445 BC up until about 397 BC, which marks the the, the time, the the 49 years roughly to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. It walks us through that season. But it goes on to say not only that first set of seven there that talks about the, the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, but then it goes on to say, and 62, So in in other words, the idea of 62 here goes on to tell us the time that takes us then from that moment all the way up from there, all the way up to the period of time that leads to the time of Christ's passion, his ascension. It leads us all the way to the moment after the, the 62 weeks, it says this, Messiah shall be cut off. And so there we have 69 weeks. 69 weeks, which again, weeks doesn't mean weeks. It just means a series of time. And it basically comes up to about 483 years. About 483 years from the time that the order was given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem until the time that Jesus dies on the cross, is buried, resurrected, and ascends into heaven here. And so this period of time of 483 years then brings us to a pause. It brings us to a moment. Now, It goes on to tell us in this passage that then he, talking about the one who comes from the prince of this world, the prince of this world is who? Satan, exactly. And so we're talking about the Antichrist here. It says that he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now again, what does one week mean? One week means seven years, right? Because again, what we're talking about week, I know, I I get it. That's why I told you to put your seatbelts on, right? And so it's the idea of seven days actually is seven years. 
And so it says then that he will make a covenant with Israel, and that's the beginning of the tribulation period. The Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel. And at the beginning of that tribulation period, the beginning of that covenant, it goes on to say in verse 27, but in the middle of the week, and if you think back of four, five, six weeks ago, we were talking about the middle of the week. We were talking about three and a half years. We're at three and a half years, the midpoint of the tribulation. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, it says this, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, he will break his covenant with Israel. And so here we are in this seventh week, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. This 490th year, 400 and, you know, the seven years that lead up to the 490 years. And in all the timeline that Daniel gave us, it lines up perfectly, except for right now we're in the middle of what is, is called the church age or the age of grace, like this break in between. And so there have been 69 years that lead up to the time that Jesus left us, the Messiah was cut off. The last year, that seventh year, that seven, seventh week, that seven, seven, that last seven years, whatever it is, okay, that part is yet to come. And that'll be the tribulation period. And so that's the picture of Daniel's prophecy. Now Daniel's prophecy leads us right up to the birth of Messiah in Matthew chapter one and, and Luke chapter two. As we enter into this, you know, this, this age of grace, we talk about the life of Christ and the gospels that are there, the crucifixion of Christ in Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, Luke chapter 23, and John chapter 19 that, of course, brings us to the resurrection of Christ in, in Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, and John chapter 20. I'm just giving you the references. We're not going to spend time there. We've spent lots of time on that already. And then we come to the ascension of Christ. And the ascension of Christ is kind of like the, the, the moment where everything pauses. And so going all the way back to the beginning of creation, we come now to the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1. Here's what it says in verse 9. And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, these are the disciples who were standing on the hillside next to him. He, Jesus, was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angels who came, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now listen, this is key. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go in to heaven. This is not just a, a phrase. It's not just a simple statement that's given. This is a promise from heaven itself. That when you saw Jesus a moment ago who's standing on the hillside and he was instantly taken up miraculously into the clouds and he disappeared into the clouds. He rose from the earth and into the heaven and then the second heaven and into the third heaven. Like that same Jesus that you saw leaving a moment ago, he will come again exactly the same way. It actually says in the same manner. That's important. Don't lose sight of that. Hold on to that for a few moments because in a moment we're going to get to a place where we find that happening. And so now we enter into the church age. The, we enter into the, the, the age of grace. We enter into this pause, this break in Daniel's 69 to the 70th week. And so from the time that this took place all the way up until the time of the rapture, like that's where we are today. Okay, so right here, right now, in this moment, this is where we are. We are stuck in this place in the church age, in the New Testament story. 
The New Testament story, really, from you know, the Gospels and the Acts chapter 1, from Acts chapter 1 all the way through until we get to Revelation, really is nothing more, but certainly nothing less, than the telling of God's story of his fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. He had his disciples around him. And there he said, who do men say that I am? They gave lots of answers. And then Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is a title that means Messiah. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus made this statement. He said, blessed are you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18 is a summary statement of what the entire scripture is about from Acts chapter one all the way through to Revelation. It's a picture of God fulfilling his promise of building the church. It's telling us how we as the church are supposed to act and how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to grow and how we're supposed to reach and how we're supposed to tell and how we're supposed to share and how we're supposed to be all that God intends for us to be. That's all the New Testament is. Like that is like New Testament, you know, intro to New Testament in, in college. Like that's it. Intro to NT. Basically, it's Matthew 16, 18 expanded. That's what it is. So for those of you who are taking intro to New Testament right now, do not go in and tell your professor tomorrow, hey, Jonathan just told me all I have to know is Matthew 16, 18, and I'm done. He will fail you, I promise. But that really is what the picture is. And so we're sitting here in this church age. We're sitting here in this moment where the telling of the church happens. The next calendar, the next calendar event in this great picture, this great narrative that God has for eternity is the rapture of the church. Now, I wanna stop right here for a moment and I wanna put a little asterisk here in the midst of this point. Because I know that there are good people, good, godly men and women, theologians, people who have like studied the Bible for more years than I've been alive, who might disagree with me on this point. Who might say that no, the rapture doesn't take place there, it takes place at a different time, or it doesn't take place at all. And so there are different views and there are different ideas all by good people. Historically, our church has always been the picture that we have a, a view of the rapture being a pre-tribulational rapture. It happens before the tribulation begins. My dad held that view. Harold Wilmington held that view. Uh, Elmer Towns, who's sitting right back over here, he holds that view and he's putting his hand up to affirm that. And Ed Heinsohn held that view. And, and most of our leaders in our history and, and most uh, conservative theologians today that, that kind of had the same view and the same picture. So I'm coming at it from that perspective. If you're sitting here today and you don't agree with me, that's okay. Like, I'm not calling you a heretic. I'm just saying, like, this is our leaning towards. This is our, our view and what we've always kind of held. And I believe that Scripture bears that out. But again, if you have a different view, great. That's awesome. And as my dad always said, when we get to heaven, we'll figure it out. But the view here is that the next event on the calendar, the prophetic calendar, is the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And in that passage, it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, this verse is not referencing the second coming of Christ because it doesn't say he's going to come down and land and, and do all the things that we read about in Revelation. It simply says that we will meet him in the air and then we shall be with him. 
So in other words, we're going to meet those who've gone before. We're going to meet him in the air. And then we are going to be in heaven until the time that we come back to this earth for the millennial reign. And that's the picture. That Greek word there uh, in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the Greek word harpazo, which literally is like a snatching up, a taking away, like like we're going to be here and then we're not. That we're going to be walking down the street with people and those who are Christians and those who are, like, those who are Christians are just going to be vanished. They're going to be gone, taken away in a moment. 1 Corinthians 15 also talks about this picture. After that happens, the next event on the calendar is the judgment seat of Christ. We read about that in Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ sounds scary. It's not. It's a really good thing because here's where we will actually receive the rewards for what we have done here on this earth. Now, that is not to say that our things that we've done here, the work that we do for him, that's what our faith is based on. This is not a picture of whether we are Christians or not. We live by faith. We accept Jesus Christ in faith. We believe that he is God's son, that he died and that he rose again. And that and that alone brings us our salvation. But as Richard Pratt says, this well-known adage is true of Paul's theology. Saved by faith alone, but faith that saves us is never alone. It goes, he goes on to say, those who have placed their faith in Christ will demonstrate their justification by living to please him. In other words, the natural reaction, the consequence of trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior is that you're going to want to do something with it. And the judgment seat of Christ is where we will receive the rewards for what we have done here. And those are the rewards that we will actually walk into eternity in collection. We will have those. And then we walk into the next element. And some of these happen like somewhat simultaneously, but we get to Revelation Reveal. Revelation chapter one through four. In Revelation chapter one through four, John is, is, is tasked with the idea of writing the end of the story. Jesus gives him his revelation. He gives him his message to the churches. And then he is ushered into the throne room of God to be able to begin this picture of being able to tell the story so that we would know what the rest of the story looks like. And then the tribulation begins. The church is gone. The church is raptured. But now here we come to the tribulation that begins. Antichrist, as we talked about a few moments ago from Daniel's prophecy, makes a covenant with Israel. He promises peace in Jerusalem. He makes that covenant. And the reunited Roman Empire comes into existence according to Daniel chapter 2 and 7, Revelation chapter 17. And here's when the two witnesses begin their journey of preaching the gospel during that seven-year tribulation, which we are now in, which is the seventh, the last week, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And the witnesses are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we then lead into the seven seals of judgment. We read about in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 8. The white horse that represents conquering power. The red horse representing war and death. The black horse representing famine to come. The pale horse representing pestilence and death. And there we read that a third, a fourth of the population of the earth will be killed during this time. And we factor in the idea that there's 8 billion people roughly today on the face of the earth. Roughly, the estimates are about 2.6 billion people uh, are Christians on the face of the earth. If the 2.6 billion people are gone, then what we'll naturally mean here is about 1.3 billion people will be killed during this first three and a half years of 
the tribulation. We read about the martyrs under the altar and the world trembles and the seventh seal, which is silence on the earth. And then we lead right into the seven trumpets of judgment, Revelation chapter 8 through Revelation chapter 11. And there we see hail and fire, mountains into the sea, and stars are flown, uh, flung down. A third of the sun, the moon, and the stars are struck. Locusts, the plague of locusts happened, the release of the four angels, the woes that are on the earth. And during these seven trumpets of judgment, another third of the world's population will be killed, about another 1.3 billion people. So from 8 billion people, 2.6 billion people are raptured, and then another 2.6 billion people are killed. You can see the destruction, the devastation that's taking place on the earth, which then brings us up to the midpoint of the tribulation period. Here we read about it in Revelation chapter 12 through 14. The dragon, Satan, arrives. The beast, Antichrist, is there. The false prophet comes onto the scene. Antichrist kills the two witnesses. And the Antichrist reneges on the promise and we walk into what then now is the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 15 and 16. The last three and a half years of that seven year tribulation. The mark of the beast is required of those who wish to eat or trade or even live. The beast, the Antichrist, will actually begin and the false prophet at his beck and call will begin to destroy and to kill anyone who has not taken the mark and worshiping and following after Antichrist here, which leads us into the last set of judgment that will be poured out on this earth, the seven bowls of judgment, sores that will come into play, sea and the blood, fresh water into blood, extreme heat from the sun that will scorch and burn, darkness in the land, Euphrates River dries up as earthquake, and then there's Armageddon the end of days, the end of the great tribulation, which we read about in Revelation 17 through 19. Babylon that has been rebuilt has fallen, both from a a, a religious standpoint and from a political and, and financial standpoint. Armageddon has taken place and the defeat of Satan and his armies has already happened, which then is in running in comparison here in correlation to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remember Acts chapter one, just as you saw him taken up in like manner, he will come again. Jesus will come. And as we read about in Revelation chapter one, verse seven, it says, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus will come back for the armies of heaven to defeat Satan and the armies of this world. And he defeats the Antichrist and the armies. And and in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus promised, I am coming quickly, like you can count on it. Consequently, in in correlation to this timeline, the marriage supper of the Lamb happens in heaven. Revelation chapter 19, verses seven through nine says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? As Adrian Rogers always said, at first there's the redemption. Second, there's the rapture. Third, there's the reward. Those in the marriage supper of the Lamb are those who have come to Christ as Lord and Savior, have then received uh, into heaven through the rapture, and then have received the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. And here they are now, and blessed are they because they sit at the table with God for eternity. And that leads us right into the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. 
Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, talks about this thousand-year period. It says in there, so he, uh, the Satan, uh, he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. Why? Because Satan has been bound. He is bound into the abyss. He is locked up. He can't get out. And he will have no influence or effect on this earth for 1,000 years. Jesus will be reigning on this earth. We will be on this earth. And we will be here. And we will live on this earth for 1,000 years, which is why I've said it a number of times. Like when they tell you that this earth is going to go away in three or four years because you're driving a suburban, it ain't going to happen. Because God needs this earth for at least another 1,007 years. And so it talks about that thousand years for six times there in Revelation chapter 20. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loosed for a moment, for a season. And he will be released and he'll gather together Gog and Magog. Now who are Gog and Magog? That is a picture of the unbelievers who will come through the millennial reign. Now you think, wait a minute, I thought that only Christians are going to be here during the millennial reign. On the millennial reign on this earth... Those Christians who come to Christ during the tribulation period and enter into the thousand-year reign, they make it through the tribulation and into the millennium, they're actually going to have children. There will be people born on this earth during that 1,000 years. And those people who are born on that earth, on this earth, during that thousand years, they're still going to have to make the, the conscious decision to believe and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, and some will not. And so when it says Satan will gather together Gog and Magog, who, Gog, who he will gather together are those who did not trust in Christ during that time. And so they will be gathered together and they will come after one last time to take God down. But God wins. And Satan at that point is dis- destroyed. He is destroyed forever. He is cast into the lake of fire along with the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of those whose names are not written in the book of life and they will be there for all of eternity. It says in Ezekiel chapter 28 about Satan, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned and therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, From the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Satan, defeated, destroyed for all of eternity. And now we find the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 14. And we come into this time. Jesus talked about it in John chapter 5. Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 12. This time when the books are opened. When everyone will stand before God on his throne. Who will be there in that group? Well, the unsaved dead will stand in judgment. Satan will stand in judgment. The fallen angels will stand in judgment. And the millennial believers will now stand in judgment. Those who are born during that time of the millennium and who have accepted and believed in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they will stand before the great white throne judgment and God will look at the book of life. And if their name is not written, they will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. But if their name is written there, they'll be ushered into heaven for all of eternity. And as it tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and Satan and all of those who are not written in the the Lamb's book of life will be tormented forever and ever and ever. There will be no end. And then we see the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 to 22, we talked about last week. And then we usher into eternity. 
And the greatest passage of scripture that I can give you about what eternity is going to look like is not found in the book of Revelation. It's actually found in the book of John. It's found in the book of John, the third chapter. And it's found in the third chapter of John, verses 16 and 17. So what does eternity look like? Well, here, let me give it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So what is eternity? Eternity is the fact that because of Christ, we will not perish, but we will be saved. And what is the the outcome of that promise? Revelation chapter 21, verses three, verses four, where it talks about this, is that God will be with them for all of eternity. That God will be right in our midst. Bob Bonheim, who is a part of our church, has been here for a lot of years. He wrote a book about the book of Revelation. And honestly, I think the best way to end our series that we've walked through now for this entire summer for the book of Revelation is what Bob wrote. And he wrote these words, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is the bright morning star. He's the son of the morning. He's the forever day star. He is both creator of David and also his actual descendant. He is without a doubt both God and man. And this book is his final warning to all before he comes. There is still time to come to him and embrace eternal life. The Holy Spirit is calling. And all the redeemed are urging people to come to Jesus and to drink of the water of life freely. Today we covered the entire narrative of God's story. From eternity past to eternity future. The story of God's perfect plan. And understand God's perfect plan was for you. God's prayer, God's plan, God's desire, God's hope is that you will walk through that journey with him not only today, but for all of eternity. The Bible says that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came for you. So the question is, are you ready? Have you believed? And are you looking forward to the day that he comes? Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise and the hope we have of heaven. God, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But God, you gave it. And you gave it freely to anyone who believes. And God, we thank you that there is still time. That there is still time to make that choice, that decision to trust and believe that Jesus is your son, that he died and that he rose again. And so God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room or anyone watching today who has never accepted you as Lord and Savior, this would be their moment that they finally say, I believe. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed, in a moment we're going to conclude our service. Our team is going to be gathered here at the front as we are after every service here at Thomas Road. And if you're here today, you're, you're not sure. 
if you're not 100% sure that if today were the day that God sent the order for the rapture of the church to take place, if you're not 100% sure that you will be in that group, then do not leave this room without making sure. Now, there's two very important thoughts that come from the statement that I just made. The first is this, is that you can be sure. The Bible very clearly tells us that if we believe that Jesus is God's son, if we believe that he died and that he rose again, Romans chapter 10, if we confess it with our lips and believe it in our heart, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be sure. That's the first thought. The second thought is this, is that if you're not sure, you're also not promised the next moment. Because that moment of the rapture could happen at any time. The Bible says God is the only one who knows the time. That means the angels don't know the time. That means the saints who have died and gone, they don't know the time. The only one who knows the time is God. Like God is the only one, which means this, I don't know and you don't know. And so the thought that comes from that is this, don't take a chance. Don't risk it. Because if that time comes and you're not ready, this entire book from Genesis to Revelation tells us that there's only two groups who will walk through that time. Those who will spend eternity in heaven with him and those who will spend eternity in hell with Satan. And I pray and I want you to be with the group in heaven, but more importantly than me, God wants you to be with that group in eternity in heaven. And so if you don't know Christ for sure, when this service is over in a moment, I encourage you to come down to the front, talk with one of our team members, and let them share with you who Christ is and what he's done, and let them pray with you today. That prayer is just simply a simple prayer. God, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is the only one who can save me. I believe he is your son. I believe he died and rose again. So forgive me of my sins. Save me today through your son, Jesus. That's it. That's the prayer. And I pray that's the prayer that you will pray today if you don't know for sure. So in a moment, our team is here. We'd love to talk with you. If you want to come down and join our church, we'd love to talk to you as well. If you want to come for baptism, if you want to come and just kneel here and pray for a loved one, a friend who's going through a difficult time, like absolutely, please do. Whatever God is speaking to you, don't leave the room without answering the call that God is calling you out with right now. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your work. And I pray that today and right now, you would do a work in each of us. And God, we will give you the praise because you're the only one worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The altar's open and I encourage you to come right now. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. 
Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love. Thank you.